Well, mental preparation is an ongoing discussion. It's not, uh, pre preparing is not something you do before a competition. Preparing is something you do within your life. Is is it, It's not necessarily, they call it mental preparation, but maybe it shouldn't be called mental preparation at all. It should be called development or evolution. There is a depth and a breadth to our lives that largely goes unexplored. As an equestrian life mindset coach and host of this podcast, I am here to lead you on that exploration. Deep conversations covering topics in and out of the show ring with industry leaders and unsung heroes alike sharing their stories and what makes their journey unique but relatable at the same time. We all have stories to share and lessons to trade, something we've learned from a horse or from each other. So relax and be ready to listen with more than just your ears. I'm Tracy Mitchell. Welcome to Hitting Your Stride. Hold your horses and get ready for this episode of Hitting Your Stride. Did you know that sports psychology involves way more than just your sport? Dr. Robert Schinke joins the podcast for this episode and shares his insights into that and many other aspects of sports psychology. The current president of the International Society of Sports Psychology and a Laurentian University teaching fellow in graduate student mentoring, Robert has a long history in equestrian sports that saw him represent Canada at the Pan Am Games twice before he followed his academic path. He is a published author several times over, as well as having co-authored more than 170 peer-reviewed scientific publications. Robert shares a lot of information with us, including all of the elements that any level of rider needs to consider in order to reach their goals in their sport. He adds the advice and direction Robert the Rider could have found useful if he had worked with Robert the Sports Psychologist, and we discuss flow state, what it is and what it's evolved into. But perhaps the biggest point Robert makes is how important it is for the athlete to truly know themselves in all aspects of their lives, because it is a holistic approach that makes the difference. The timing of this conversation couldn't be more perfect, given that the show season is just around the corner. So I would suggest having a pen and paper nearby to take some notes. Get ready to soak it all in. So help me welcome Dr. Robert Schinke to Hitting Your Stride. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hitting Your Stride. And today I have with me Robert Schenke, a sports psychologist. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for showing up today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, I think this will be good. <laughs> All right, so let's start uh, with talking about your roots in the equestrian world. How did you develop an interest in riding? And what was it like for you progressing through the Canadian equestrian system? Yeah, when I was very young, uh, my, my mother and father parted company and my mother landed up remar remarrying a, a riding coach. And the riding coach was Wolf Schinke. And, and so I landed up taking on his last name. And uh, he was effectively my coach from uh, the days I began as an equestrian to uh, when I was on the Young Riders four times and then subsequently on young on, on Pan American Games teams as a reserve rider and, and going off to Rolex uh, events and those sorts of things so it was it was one coach for the entire duration of my uh, limited uh, equestrian career until I went back to university that's almost unheard of <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, no, it, it is like now as a sports psychology scholar, like I, I never hear of one, like coaches specialize, you know, working with kids and then working with youth and developmental sport and, and the certification system is pretty much set up that way. And yet I had the same coach from, from the very beginning, from my inception, right through to uh, when I retired and went back to graduate school. Wow. All right. Yeah. So can you share with, with me and the listeners a little bit about your experience in the saddle and what it was you did? You were an inventor, correct? Yeah, I was. I was a, I was a three-day eventer, and I started uh, doing eventing in 1978 and pre-training level, and then a few years later, well, was a provincial champion in Quebec and Ontario in 1980 with a different horse, and then made my first young riders team in 1983, and then was again on the young riders team as the anchor from 1985 to 1987, and then uh, sort of skirted around the senior team, but at the same time, I was a full-time university student, and I always had... Um, much like a person I held in really high regard from hockey, a uh, guy called Ken Dryden, who uh, worked with the Toronto Maple Leafs. I always had that concept in the back of my mind that I wanted to be educated and go back to graduate school and be a, a, a career professional. Hmm. Okay, awesome. So when was, have you been in the saddle since you retired? When was your retirement? Yeah, no, I I, I stopped uh, competing in 1991. I was uh, I went back to graduate school in 1992, uh, and then since then I've I've been a uh, I did my PhD and my master's at Ottawa U and my PhD at the University of Alberta, and then a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, and and then I slowly picked up master's level running. So I'm an endurance runner now. Oh, uh, but wow. no, I haven't. Been back. I haven't been back in in the equestrian world as as an as, a, as an athlete since oh probably a quarter century now. Oh wow, <laughs> you're a busy guy. <laughs> okay, so what was it that led you to sports psychology? Was it something that had its roots in your equestrian days, or was it born from something else? No, it was it was my own inconsistencies as an equestrian. One on one level, like I'd go to a competition or I had seasons, memorable seasons. Like there was one in 1989 where I was virtually unbeatable, and then my performance would go up and then it would go down. So I'd, I'd do really well to young riders. At that time, it was just a two star event, uh, and then I'd come back to the nationals and I wouldn't do very well. And then another event where I do really well, and I was very inconsistent. I wasn't a consistent uh, high level. Like I was consistently at at, at an elite level, but I wasn't consistent in the results at that level uh and that's what sort of precipitated this idea of like what is going on with me and and why is it that i'm so inconsistent and then i started delving into sports psychology and looking at ottawa u and that was the epicenter canada was the epicenter of sports psychology back then with terry orlick and really? so that and he was actually the person who uh endorsed me to come back to graduate school and, and argued my case as a as a retired athlete Wow. So what did you learn about yourself during that time where you're sort of like, okay, how can I fix this? Yeah, I learned a few things. One of them was this concept of uh, there are some young riders who are university students while they're concurrently doing a relatively elite level of competition. I was one of those. So I had a, a foot in both camps, whereas a lot of the elite athletes I've worked with since then, I've done a, a quarter century of working with Olympic and professional boxing, more professional than Olympic. Those are full-time athletes. And yet I wasn't. I had what you'd call a dual career. So I had a career as a student and then eventually a graduate student and a career as 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 a quasi athlete um and and so the challenges associated with my performance were that I was effectively trying to do two things at a very high level, getting a scholarship at, in university and on to graduate school and becoming a dean scholar. And at the same time, trying to maintain uh, 
uh, a level that was at the same uh, standard as people who were doing it full time and being on a tour. And so there were challenges. It, it was sort of like slicing a pie in half and half of the pie was devoted to studies and half of the pie was devoted to my athletic career. The other piece I learned very quickly was that I uh, didn't have a systematic approach to managing myself, to recovery, uh, to uh, surrounding myself with a team, such as like a lot of the Olympic and professional athletes. Now, most of the professional athletes are surrounded with a sports psychologist, a massage therapist, which you would know, Tracy, yeah. uh, an athletic therapist, uh, maybe a kinesiologist, a strength and conditioning coach. They have a whole like entourage or an uh, integrated support team is what OTP would call it now. And I didn't have any of that. I was just when I was involved with sport, I was straight doing uh, my work with my coach. And that was all I did. I didn't do any sort of uh, mental strength training, like mental coaches are very important. Mm -hmm. It's not just the technical and tactical aspect of yourself, but it's also developing that psychological understanding of yourself and how you tick, which will be different than how some other athlete or coach ticks. Uh, and it's finding the keys to your own performance and demystifying mm -hmm. it. That is at the epicenter of, of, of what I've looked at for the last 25 years. Wow. So one of my coaching clients is a really super talented young dressage rider who will be on the Canadian team one day. I know it. And she mm -hmm. is so intent on like, and she's in her first year university. So, and, you know, we, we have these chats about how does she balance her time and the stuff that she works with. And I'm really proud of her. She's doing a really good job, especially, you know, navigating first year. She's very aware of the things I think that you mentioned. I know we're going to get into a little piece of advice you can give riders, but if someone right now is listening to this, and I hope she will, <laughs> That was in her in her situation, and you were in yours. What can you tell someone that's trying to divide the pie in half? Well, I think a lot of it is related to stress and time management. And you start with time management and managing the day effectively and prioritizing uh, the high priority aspects versus moderate priority versus low priority aspects. I think sometimes people fill their days and their weeks with a lot of activities, and yet they don't prioritize what are the key things they want to achieve in a given day and over the course of a week and into a month and a yearly plan. Uh, and, and so they're covering a lot of things managing them as equal priority. And then what happens is they land up burning out and getting into uh, over overtraining syndromes, uh, which is a really predominant thing in the International Olympic Committee's uh, athlete mental health statement is that's one of the most common things right alongside insomnia, which is another piece to the puzzle. And, and that's uh, insomnia is oftentimes stress produced from not managing your day and not winding down in your evening. And, and so it ties in with time management. And that's the interesting thing about sports psychology and working with athletes is putting the pieces together because it's never one thing. It's always a few pieces at play at the same time and managing the day in relation to those pieces. And so time management and, and prioritizing what is important to you in terms of your studies, for example, or, or holding down a job and in terms of your equestrian career and, and being that athletic identity. Wow. I've got so much running through my head net right now. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So is there something that Robert the rider would have benefited hearing from Robert the sports psychologist that would have made a big difference? Well, Robert the rider was introduced to sports psychology about a week before uh, 
he and his team went off to the Pan American Games in 1987, and someone <laughs> came in to a training camp. This was this was really interesting and uh, suggested to us some key things about a week out from a competition. Wow. Robert the rider wasn't much interested in uh, the sports psychologist, regardless of whether the person had the key attributes to be able to help Robert the rider, but. What I find is that oftentimes putting those pieces in place takes a little bit of patience and a systematic approach. Anything systematic will stick so that when you're under pressure, you can perform at a high level and you remove all those prevailing small question marks that seem to enter into people's minds as they get closer to key competitions. So, you know, for the athlete out there, be it Robert the writer or some other writer who's going to be much more successful than Robert the writer was, um, <laughs> is sort of making sure that they get address those question marks early enough in advance. And that's where a mental performance coach really comes into play if you get the correct one, because there's obviously variations in standards and what people uh, prioritize in terms of their uh, mental skills delivery. But removing those question marks is front and center to sort of the equivalent of taxing a plane to the runway before takeoff is you need to remove all of the obstacles and the foreseeable ones because there's going to be enough unforeseeable ones that you can address on the fly. But if you've got these uh, barriers that you're like question marks that are you're going and taxing to the runway with or taxing to your competition with over the top of what you're going to face in that performance, you're not going to perform well. So over the course of the last 25 years working with world champion boxers and the HBO and Showtime, one of the things I had to do was in the two months before a major event, highly televised events, is to sort of identify those barriers and move them out of the way, along with other skills that I did, like opponent profiling and those sorts of pieces. But even the last 10 days before a major event at the Bell Center, or if we were traveling to Germany or Romania or wherever it is we were traveling, uh, I lived with the athlete. I was the full-time delegate uh, on behalf of the coach and the management team and the promoter living with the athlete, making sure they eat well, sleep well, attend proper um, press conferences, answer in the right way. Because when you respond to people's questions and to dialogue with other people, you're actually reinforcing thinking in your own mind, which then brings to light either positive things, neutral things, or negative things. Uh, so I believe in really clearing the way and managing the environment effectively so that when the athlete gets into the competition, they're clear to perform and manage those last minute details. They don't have any other things to attend to. Wow. Holy cow. I love this topic. <laughs> this is fascinating. So does helping an athlete unlock their potential feel the same as it did when you were a young rider experiencing success? I think that the uh, expectations are probably higher. I think the, I don't know if the standards are higher. I, th I think they probably are in some regard. I, obviously, uh, the dressage is higher for, for, for the three-day rider and the show jumping is a higher standard as well. And the cross country is more exact. Dressage level riders, I've worked with a few of those international level riders uh, at this moment. Um, I think the standards are for far more exacting, but the knowledge of what's out there in terms of resources is also more expand, expansive. It continues to uh, develop in terms of sports science. And, and I think the key is for an athlete is not to overload yourself with a lot of fancy trinkets, but to find those key players uh, to work with. So a key coach is obviously important. Uh, strength and conditioning person, obviously important in a mental performance coach, uh, obviously very important and massage for recovery, obviously important. Those are to me are, are some key hubs uh, that an athlete really has to 
work with now and those skill sets are well developed now as opposed to where they were 25 years ago yeah well I got your name, um, Yvonne Laslos de Munez, the dressage rider for the Dominican. She was a guest. I can't remember what episode it was, but just back in the fall. And yeah, she mentioned your name a couple of times and she was very intent on talking about her team. Exactly what you said. Like she has a team in place and everybody does their thing and she's doing so well. Yeah, a very highly systematic A-type person uh, looks at things at a granular level, is very aware and self-reflective of her own uh, challenges and weaknesses and, and working. We all have limitations that we're on, ongoing trying to shore up in our own performance set. And, and Yvonne has been wonderful at filling in the gaps and, and being resourceful with the right people as opposed to being reliant with one or two and, and not going too wide. Uh, with her support system. And uh, I, I never mentioned, uh, I, I don't mention the clients I work with other than the ones who mentioned me uh, in newspapers. But, uh, but but yes, I've known her for a quarter century now. Wow. Yeah. She's she's a lovely, lovely person and a very she's talented a writer. Person. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. So given the number of different sports you're involved in, what are some of the similarities you see in the athlete's mindset that helps to set them apart? The similarities, I'm not quite sure of the question. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the commonalities across great athletes. Okay. Uh, I, let me start with that one, because that's one I could probably take a stab at. And it's it, there's a constant across sports, whether it's combative sports or artistic sports or endurance sports. It, it really doesn't make a difference. It's that uh, they're, they're precise sorts of people. They don't uh, leave things to chance, and they're not... Um, putting things together on the fly. Now I've worked with uh, a vast number of teams. A shooting team was one of them. Uh, early on when I was still in my PhD, I was working uh, with the dressage team for, for a very short period of time. Um, but what I found uh, over the last quarter century is that the ones who are exemplary, and, and I'm not just saying one-offs, such as a medal at an Olympics or one-off as a medal at a world championships, uh, but I'm saying consistently high-level results where they don't deviate and they go from horse to horse or or they go from competition to competition across seasons uh, and, and decades of performances. These are the people who are very exacting and very self-aware of what they need and they stick to what they know works. They don't deviate uh, when they see another opponent, a world-class opponent doing this sort of warm-up or taking this sort of approach in the media, that world-class athlete, consistently world-class athlete, doesn't try to duplicate or replicate someone else's methodology. They know who they are and they stay within who they are. Each athlete is unique. Uh, it, it, it's not a universal thing where all athletes are the same. All athletes are uh, low anxiety or moderate anxiety or high anxiety. Not every athlete comes from the same background, has the same coach, has the same athlete, uh, the same horse. There, there's all kinds of level of education. There's all kinds of variabilities in each athlete. Each athlete is a boutique operation, much as each horse is a boutique operation. But for that athlete to actually log, and this is, this is a thing that most athletes do not do, is they don't document and log after performances what went well, amount of sleep, nutrition, 
communication, sort surrounding themselves with the right people, saying the right things, doing the correct warm up, managing their day, managing their week effectively, leading up to competitions, being their authentic self. There's another mm -hmm. piece to the puzzle that is really important. A lot of world class athletes are oftentimes inauthentic in the sense that they are trying to sound like someone else that they would like to emulate. But the person they like to emulate, they may want to emulate technically or mm -hmm. tactically, but they cannot emulate all of that person because all that person becomes someone different. And then the athlete starts to sound like someone outside of themselves. And that takes away it from their confidence. It breaks their confidence. Wow. Okay. So when you were talking about that, the first thing that popped into my mind was the whole comparisonitis you know, the whole social media, you see the results of this person and then like, oh my gosh, I want to achieve that. And then they lose their authentic self. I love that. So yeah, yeah. what what do you think about the, the world of riding right now with social media involvement? Yeah, and it's the hardest thing in the world. This is quite different as a time as compared to 25 years ago or even 15 years ago is social media is prevalent now. We've got TikTok, we've got Twitter, we've got Instagram, we've got Facebook, we've got all of those things. And people are on their SM all day and all evening long. And there's some setbacks to it. One is it, it, it's wonderful to interface with your clients and to in, interface with a fan base. If you're a world-class athlete and you do, you do need that in the sense of having sponsors. We have to recognize there's a place, a really good place for social media in terms of promotion and in terms of connecting with people. And yet that connectivity has to also be moderated by the fact that uh, you need to be inside your own body and inside your own head when you're competing and you need to wind down at the end of the day. Never has there been so much insomnia and compromised mental health as there is today among athletes to the point now where we've got uh, global athlete mental health statements in, in, in the society where I'm president, the International Society of Sports Psych, uh, but the, the European Federation of Sports Psychologists, the IOC, they're all the Canadian uh, Centre for Athlete Mental Health on, on a more domestic level. These places are all coming forth with uh, recognition of athlete mental health. Now, athlete mental health has been consistent um, in the sense that we've always had compromised mental health. We may not have centralized it before, and yet now the polls on one's focus to be outside of oneself and to overload oneself with stress are predominant for high level athletes, be they amateur or professional. It's very different than it was 20 years ago. So things that might've been challenging 20 years ago are further um, mitigated by the demands of social media to the point where people burn out. You know, to, to try to be an elite athlete and manage your hours in the saddle, out of the saddle, working with clients, um, working with sponsors, that in and of itself, in and of itself is a full-time job. Then if the person has a, a career also as a student, that splits the pie. But then you start having the social media piece and depending on how much time people devote to it and how much time they're taking away from their own self-development to manage their social media could compromise their performance, their self-worth. People could get blown up um, on social media as well. It's not, it's not, it's a great thing, but it's also a challenging thing. And people have got to be careful in the evenings uh, before sleep, people are on social media, compromise of sleep contributes to thinking when someone should be low arousal and getting ready for sleep and recovery to yeah. fight the next day. So is it, plausible then in this world of having like these athletes having a team around them that somebody be dedicated to ma like managing their social media 
Yeah, at the highest level, that, that is one possible thing is to have someone help them with their social media. The other thing is that their, their team and the athlete has to be at the epicenter of that team because that athlete is making the bottom line decisions. Not They don't give over the bottom line decisions right. to people. The res their resources are their resources, but the bottom line is, and, and one of my uh, longstanding world champion athletes is, has told me this, is that at the bottom line, he, and he's told me this and he's made tens of millions of dollars in a career as he said at the end of the day i make the decision i take the information i filter it and i'm and i make the decision and the bottom line is the athlete has to decide when it's time to pull off of that social media when it's time to re-engage and it has to be wisely chosen so that they can have that psychological recovery along with their physical recovery wow very uh, wise advice there because you know like when i go on social media i do i cut it off after like 7 p.m. I don't want to, you know, what is it, scroll or do anything like that. But, you know, I see a lot where it's just like little things here and there. And, and you just kind of wonder again, whether it's involving some of the comparisonitis or people just trying to be seen. But then I just wonder, like, how does it take you away or how does it take them away from their goals right well so the other the other piece of the puzzle is and you've just said it is it's their goals it's it's the athlete's goals and the athlete has to be driven from inside of themselves and not from the feedback that comes from someone else seeing them from the outside looking in right. you have to be on the inside looking out in order to be a world-class performer you have to be fortified in that concept of you make the decisions and you are influenced and driven by your own uh pathways of what you what you value uh qualities you value um morality you value um performance objectives that you value and you have to stay true to that course and it's very easy to get pulled off of that course via social media via fandom via sponsorship and you have to be very mindful of being authentic and remaining authentic long-standing into who you are and where you wish to go otherwise the the, the performance trajectory is going to be really compromised you're not going to have the career you should have wow oh, okay <laughs> so moving on to the next question this wasn't something that you had prepared me to ask you but something that kind of fascinates me so I hope you can fill in some of the blanks here um can you talk to me about flow state and yeah. what it is and is it possible to have it with another entity that has its own mind yeah, because it, it, it's synergistic. That's the neat thing about equestrian is, is the flow state is a shared flow state. Okay. Now, I've never seen science and research about shared flow state because there's very little on equestrian and flow. I haven't seen anything, in fact. Uh, the research and science behind flow ended about 20 years ago. I've seen very little on flow state ever since, believe it or not. And there was a there was a leader from che Czechoslovakia called Mihaly Mihaly, and he did the he was the authentic person on flow state uh, two decades ago. Since then, um, people have sort of teased at and surrounded themselves with concepts that sort of bridge. Uh, with flow state and that's um, what we're really talking about when we're talking about flow state is we're talking about being at that level of performance where you actually suspend all of your thinking and you're just doing at the highest level that's really what flow state is about to get there is about clearing the question marks it's about answering all the questions in advance and it's easy to be confident two months before an event it's a little less easy as you go to seven weeks, six weeks, five weeks, four weeks, 
the week before, if you're if you're one of the elite athletes listening to this, you could probably relate to this concept is it's much more challenging as you get down to those final days. That's when a lot of the self questioning comes to the forefront. But my my belief and, and what I found is that you clear the decks early enough, a lot of the questioning will continue to come, but it will be proportionally a lot less of self-questioning if you clear the decks early enough that you're able to taxi to the runway. And only then can you actually have uh, a performance where it's beyond the mind thinking things through. That's what you want to do is you want to know the, the material so well that you can be interpretive with the material. So that's, I guess that's what you would call a flow state. It, flow state. It's getting beyond that descriptive con concept of doing movements in a dressage test and thinking through the movement to actually having that interpretive artistic element to your cross country, your dressage and your show jumping, where you're so fine tuned that you're with the horse and the horse is aware of that because the horse is, is a manifestation in some regards of who you are. They're, they're mm -hmm. accustomed to you and your training. And if you're a very different person, the week of the competition, you're, you're stiff and you're abrupt and you're impatient and you're all these things, this unfamiliar person that the horse knows is happening around a competition, you're impeding their, you're blocking their flow state as well. And they know that the person in training is going to be different than the person in competition, which then leads to horse anxiety, yeah. needs to rider anxiety because of the inconsistency but the inconsistency is the athlete doing things that they shouldn't be doing that they know are foreign to them that are deviating from their authentic path and that's where you get away from flow is where you have to think things through because you don't know them don't believe them they're not authentically you yet so you have to practice things simulation is one key area where you can really induce flow state is where you actually and, and Jack Lagoff when I when I was a, a youngster taught me this in three day eventing he was a, a successful uh, three day event coach from France who obviously taught the United States equestrian team to several gold medals and helped Canada for a short period and he talked about actually drawing out uh, in dressage drawing out your figures and then walking in the ring or maybe I took that, but uh, but walking in the ring and doing your figures and seeing where you are and having an awareness of where you are and then doing the visualization in your mind and doing a lot of run-throughs and then adding distractions to those run-throughs and then doing it you know, with your jacket on and perhaps in a wind and, and not doing it in an insulated, uh, sanitized environment so that you're able to perform and suspend the other piece of flow state is you got to remove the distractions mm. and you got to be you got to invest in that authentic part of you to release the authentic part of the horse wow it's kind of surprising that nothing has been further looked into regarding flow state considering you know in spite of what we just talked about regarding social media but in you know the world right now of just trying to um increase mindfulness and all of that kind of stuff, you'd think it would be more of a hot topic or a hot yeah, part of training. Yeah. And a lot of the practice practitioner work is driven by scientists and the scientists, you know, tend to rebrand things in different names. So okay. you take flow, they call it mastery now. Uh, and, and it's sort of linked. The, okay. the two concepts are linked. So that's you at your very best when you're in control and have that perceived feeling of control in your performance and you're doing things to that interpretive level. And that's the key to it is, is getting beyond 
the doing to the interpretive artistic level where it's you're just adding in gr gr grains of sand of addition and refinement that you couldn't otherwise do had you not rehearsed it and that you're not a, a comfortable with the scenario and comfortable with the distractions around you all of that has to be cleared so that you can actually do the performance to the highest level wow Oh, so much to think about there. Yes. So I guess uh, for any listeners that are like, okay, this topic really gets me, they should be looking up mastery. Like, is it specific to athletes? Yeah. And that's the other piece with, with scientists is they write in, in language that is impenetrable uh, yeah. that, and not usable uh, with athletes and coaches. And one of the things that one of the journals I'm now editing is called the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action, where we actually do those sorts of pieces that are shorter and written at a, at a level that is very practical. It's not, it's not beneath, it just gets rid of all the jargon and gets down to, okay, how do we use this concept? How can you use it on your daily basis uh, as an athlete or as a coach? So we have athletes and coaches, in fact, contributing uh, some pieces to that particular journal now, oh. even though it's a journal to oh. sort of bridge the science and the practice, uh, the consumer and the provider. That would be an interesting book. I would like to read that. <laughs> it, it, it's an ongoing journal. It's a quarterly journal uh, okay. that, com that, that comes out. Um, yeah. Nice. Okay, so what is the biggest misconception about sports psychology that you have to work through with your athletes? Yeah, I think the misconception, and maybe it's a reasonable one, because I've heard this enough from, from athletes, uh, especially ones coming from uh, foreign countries. I've done a, probably half of my clients were uh, originally from other countries, or they're, or they're still from other countries that have been had some initial experiences with sports psychology, where people are trying to change them. In, in the way they do their business, as opposed to working uh, with the athlete and building the athlete based on their strengths, using a strength-based approach. So what they're doing oftentimes is, uh, not I'm not saying this in Canada, but I'm saying some of the some of the clients I've come across are, you know, they're the the practitioners are trying to do the very same thing with every athlete or every client or some semblance of the same thing. Whereas each athlete being their own boutique operation comes from a cultural background, uh, comes from an, uh, a hereditary background from a family and a history that has brought them to us to that point. And I think the practitioners need to really understand that before they can engage uh, with the athlete meeting them where they are. And so if you're looking for a practitioner, you're, you're probably wanting that kind of practitioner who does a proper understanding intake interview with you, um, gets a sense of what your background is, does some collateral interviews with coaches uh, and, and significant people in your life, and then works with you because the hour that they're working with you is an hour every several weeks or, or once a month or whatever. And then you go back into your environment as an athlete and you're in that environment the other hours of the day across days and across weeks. And so the impact of a sports psychologist will only be impactful if that person understands the environment that you're going back to and works with that environment so that they can reinforce refinements and help you in your development and evolution based on the trajectory, the authentic trajectory that you have chosen. So have you ever started with a client and they're like, okay, Robert, this is great, but I don't, I'm not asking you to help me, you know, with my relationships outside of sports. I'm asking you to help me with my sport. Like, is it yeah. sometimes challenging for them to understand or see how it all fits together? I don't think so because okay. I, when they come back, uh, when they come back, as you get to know the athlete, 
a lot of the stress and challenges are life stresses that oftentimes come outside of the sport, but you cannot, as an athlete, say, okay, this is me in the sport, uh, and I can keep that separate. You bring yourself with you onto your horse. And oftentimes, and I was I was a culprit of this as I was very short-tempered when I was a young rider and impatient with my horses, unnecessarily so. And what was going on there was that I was bringing a lot of the nervousness or a lot of the anger and the uncertainty in my life onto the horse with me. And then the horse would, being an imperfect creature and being for all the wonderful things, unpredictable to some degree when something unpredictable happened then I would be impatient and intolerant with the horse why because I was bringing uh, my day with me or an exchange I might have had with a with a sponsor or, or with a professor or in my personal life with a with my coach or you know or I was just overloaded and tired didn't have enough sleep and I brought that with me into my competition uh, into my training or into my competition and it impacted the performance so you can't say this is this is me the rider without saying this is me the rider and riding is part of my life nice okay now the the sports psychologist like or the sports psychology consultant not all of us are clinical psychologists and i am not that i was more interested in the performance and the sports science end of things so i oftentimes worked with a clinical psychologist a clinical psychiatrist uh a team that included in some cases with professional boxers social workers uh, all kinds of different resources depending on what the athlete's needs were so that we could clear the pathway for the athlete to perform walk to the ring and perform wow yeah. Holy cow. All right. So I have part of a quote of you saying an athlete's identity needs to be broad enough and well-developed enough so that the athlete component, which is important, does not stop them from understanding that they are more than the athletic performance itself. How challenging can it be to distinguish those two parts of an athlete and what can athletes and riders do on their own to help make that more a delineated line? Okay, that's a pretty complex question. <laughs> uh, let me let me give it a shot. Um, and and uh, you're right. An athlete has an, the athletic identity, and they have different identities. They have their identity as a family member. They have an identity uh, as a coach, perhaps. They have an identity as a student. Uh, they have an identity as a hobbyist, doing different things. They might, you know, people are interested in commerce or an investment. Ian Miller was a was always interested in, in business. And that, that was one of his identities, right? Mine was uh, the student identity along with the family identity, along with the athletic identity. And I was a hobbyist as well. So those are all separate identities. They're part of the same person, but they're different sorts of interest areas um, that are part of the person. Now, here's the deal is that when you take a look at athletes retiring, regardless of whether it's an equestrian or whether it's in, in boxing or ice hockey or, or, or wherever, you take a look at someone like Muhammad Ali, uh, had a really well-developed athletic identity, but didn't develop some of the other areas in his life and had a hard time journeying out, came back um, into sport as an athlete uh, tried to retire, couldn't retire. There were ice hockey players, countless ice hockey players, countless equestrians to, uh, who, and, and Terry Orlick did this research 30 years ago uh, out of the University of Ottawa on transitions and, and, and the athletes who were able to transition out from being an athlete to being a coach, to being uh, an educator, to being whatever it is they became. Those are people who had multiple identities well-developed, not just their equestrian identity. Now, if you have an equestrian identity and that identity no longer works, what then? 
you don't have any fallback plan, right? And so these are the people who usually come back uh, in into equestrian and then eventually they're deselected and this happens across countries in China they have a, a, a high rate of mental health I'm, I'm, I'm now involved with working with high performance sport with the Chinese and the Taiwanese and the Japanese all of these people across the world have a high challenge in um, transition out of sport because the, the athletes are, are not developed as they're coming into the elite level into the various identities they should develop Wow. Yeah. So how can you transition out when you have nothing to transition to and no skills in that area and you don't see yourself as anything but an athlete, mm. which is why you have to have that cross section of interests, because eventually a, a, an athletic uh, career is a wonderful thing for an equestrian or, or any other aspiring athlete. And yet it's for an infinite period of time. It's not indefinite. That's right. So you have to be able to uh, develop other skills, interests, a relationship. You need to develop those two, right? And personal relation. You got to work on your personal self, and, and a partner is a great way to do that. And working with family is a great way to do that. Uh, and peers is a great. You have to have a peer group and, and friends outside, and you got to be a little bit diversified. You invest sort of like an investor invests in more than one stock. You invest in more than one identity. Wow. Yeah. So very holistic in, in your approach to life. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't equestrian. I had a hard time transitioning out. Um, thankfully I had a bit of a student identity, which I fell back on, but even then it was a bumpy transition out. Now I'm a, a scientist and a scholar, but I'm also a, a high performance master's runner. I do, I do, I've, I've won a lot of half marathons. I'm now doing marathons and ultras. Um, I'm an author uh, as well. I'm uh, a practitioner to a certain degree, less so now than I was in the past. Um, I, I've, I've got a family, uh, kids and a, and a partner, a wife and, and a mother-in-law who lives with me. I've got a lot of diversity to my life and I like that diversity. Okay. Yeah. Huh. All right. Is there something that most riders should keep in mind about mental preparation that in your opinion, they don't always remember to do? Well, mental preparation is an ongoing discussion. It's not uh, pre preparing is not something you do before a competition. Preparing is something you do within your life. Is is it, it's not necessarily they call it mental preparation, but maybe it shouldn't be called mental preparation at all. It should be called development or evolution, right. uh, and it's, it's understanding yourself. I think people have got to be really diligent in keeping a reflective logbook. Now, a lot of, especially uh, more, more female athletes are, are, are more inclined to do this than males in the experiences I've had. Uh, male athletes have a more challenging time. I, I used to do logbooks for athletes with athletes because when when I was working a lot with full-time with professional athletes, um, they didn't want to do it for themselves and they thought it was hokey. And yet what we would do is we would keep a logbook of what they needed for time for sleep uh, in general training, what they needed for sleep in competition. We typically add 45 minutes to an hour to that. What did they need for nutrition, hydration, relationships, uh, time management and prioritization, um, what they needed to do before they got into their training one day each day so that they can actually regroup and narrow as opposed to transition at the snap of a finger from doing coaching to jumping on a horse, which is what most equestrians do. They say, okay, I've done this task. I'm going to go on to the next task, but they don't really do the mental, the mental transition happens slower than the physical transition. When they leave their lesson, put their foot in the stirrup, 
sit on the horse, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're now an athlete as opposed to a coach. But the transition should be three or four minutes of, okay, what are my objectives? Well, you know, you wake up in the morning, what would I like to achieve today? Just four or five minutes of thinking and reflection about what is my goal today? And even posting those on their, on their fridges, by their beds, and just some reminders of key values or, uh, and key objectives they have you know, for that month to keep them on track so that they can tr transition more effectively as opposed to letting their mind catch up with their body. The mind and the body should be working ideally in sync, which then leads to your question of flow. That's when flow happens. That's when people are in mastery is when their mind and body are working uh, at such a high level that they're no longer thinking they've suspended thought. They really haven't suspended thought. It's just that it's so they're, they're, they're channeling, channeling their energy in such an interpretive level that they're not even thinking about it. They're just being that performance now. Wow. Okay. So what would you tell somebody? Cause I hear a lot of people. It's like, Oh my God, I got in the ring and this happened. What yeah. is there a piece of advice you can give the listeners about that? Uh Oh, that happens in the ring and how to deal with it. Yeah, and I think it, a good deconstructing of the performance, debriefing, um, coaches do this with athletes, but well, really, what is the debrief about? What what did you learn about your lead up to the event? What did you learn about your management of time, uh, your focus? Did you narrow sufficiently? Were you systematic in the way you managed leading up to that event, that dressage test, that cross-country experience, show jumping experience, endurance experience? Were you... Did you make the right decisions? Because it's it's a death by a thousand cuts, right? It's not it's not by one cut. It's not one colossal mistake, even though we like to explain it as that one thing. It's usually three or four things that intersect that lead to that performance and debriefing, putting it on paper. And then those things become your competition plan. If, if you can put it on paper, then every month you go with a, two highlighters, positive insights, negative insights. Okay. Let's take this, let's see about the recurring patterns of how much I sleep, what do I eat, uh, what is the communication I like to have, uh, what are the consistencies in my warm-up patterns, uh, my equipment, all of those things, and together they should be able, you should be able to uh, synthesize them into a single page, and that is the lock and key to your performance. Wow. Oh my goodness, this has been... <laughs> so valuable such a valuable conversation okay robert what does the future hold for you and your work do you have any goals left that you're still reaching for and based on just knowing you for the last hour i bet you you've got lots of goals <laughs> no, i'm continuing I, I i had um a whole career as a, as a research scientist while i was doing a practice practicing so i'm a science-based practitioner and, and I'm now the, currently the president of the International Society of Sports Psychology in my second term, which will come to an end in Hong Kong in 2025. Um, I'm working internationally in, in advancing science and in advocating for uh, effective and systematic practice in people. Um, I've got kids who are heading off to high school. I've got my running and I'm doing a, a marathon this spring and trying to qualify for Boston, which I'll do, and an ultra in the fall. Oh, wow. I've got lots of, I've got good friends. I uh, just got back from a double Disney cruise. <laughs> no, I, I'm very happy with, with how things are unfolding. I've just written my first self-improvement book. I've written a lot of academic texts, like encyclopedias and dictionaries and those sorts of things. 
but now I've got a new self-improvement book. I've got an agent uh, and that will be, we're just launching it with a publisher uh, shortly. And then that'll be coming out as well. And then I'll be following that up with a second book. I'm going to get that book. <laughs> I read so much. I'm like hitting, I'm surpassing my goal for books read this year. And I like to call them, my library is pretty big with these all these books I call it my personal success library yeah right it's just uh yeah so Robert I will definitely pre-order one of those books when it comes out so please let me know <laughs> absolutely and thank you so much for the invitation to be uh, part of this podcast oh thank you it has been wonderful and I'm positive that the listeners will get some very valuable information out of this thank you and thanks for bringing me back to equestrian for a brief instance awesome <laughs> So there you have it. I have some great interviews lined up for future episodes and we'll be covering some pretty interesting topics, as always with the intent to open and engage the horse world on a wide variety of issues. So until next time, keep your eyes forward and continue to hit your stride. To stay current with Hitting Your Stride, subscribe on my website or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here today, make sure you share and leave a comment to help guide future episodes and widen the audience. And be sure to check out social media to keep up to date with Equestrian Elements Life Coaching.